Hello, everybody. This is Mark Vines, and welcome to the Mark Vines Show. And thanks again for joining us for another day of freedom, the Constitution, and all things conservative politics. And so today, we are going to be continuing on with our Let's Meet the Candidates for the upcoming election. And we have with us today our guest, Mike Cherry, who's going to be running for the House uh, uh, de- delegates, District 66 here in Virginia. And Mike is a staff pastor for the Life Church, and um, he also is a teacher at Life Christian Academy. And he was a in the Air Force for 20 years, retired Air Force. Yeah, now you know me, guys. I was a, a naval officer, so fly Navy, but that's okay. That's okay. He's a veteran from the Air Force, 20 years. And what I also like about him near and dear to my heart is he does a lot of work with police departments by working as a police chaplain. And... Um, and he's on the also on the city council in Colonial Heights. And so with that, I want to welcome Mike Cherry. Thanks for joining us today. Mark, thanks so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for the awesome introduction. And uh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here to talk about the campaign and what we're trying to accomplish here in House District 66. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to this point and, you know, really what's driving you into this race. And, um, you know, just tell us what, what do you bring to the table? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so a little bit about me. I'll give you the thumbnail uh, biography sketch. I'm originally from North Carolina. I joined the military when I was 18 years old and um, I served as what's known as an aircraft loadmaster. So on heavy cargo planes, there's someone who sits in the back that takes care of the passengers in the cargo, does weight and balance. Um, through that process, I got to travel to six of the seven continents in over 75 different countries, uh, only missing Antarctica through the career. Uh, married to my high school sweetheart, and uh, we've been married for 30 years as of June this year. And so we're coming up on uh, 30 years of marriage. Uh, we actually married, we were high school sweethearts. She married a week out of high school. She graduated on Friday. We got married the next Saturday and moved 3,000 miles away to Washington State for my first duty station. Uh, did only transit four duty stations, Washington State, South Carolina, and Charleston, uh, Oklahoma at the schoolhouse, and then landed here at Fort Lee in uh, just outside of Petersburg, Virginia as my final duty assignment, where I worked as a liaison for the airdrop community, um, working with paratroop riggers, and those that would rig the cargo to get the cargo out of the airplane and get it to the troops on the ground. And so uh, that's what I did. I retired. Uh, started in 2011. I started working as a civil servant on Fort Lee teaching. I realized when I was doing my resume upon uh, my retirement, I'd actually been teaching for over 17 years. Most of my flight hours are actually instructor hours. I spent more time teaching people how to do the job than actually doing the job as a loadmaster. So I did that for about a year, and then I got a call to full-time ministry and was asked to take over a struggling private Christian school. And we have grown that from 110 student body to over 270, which is what I do today. I'm head of School Life Christian Academy here in Chesterfield and Colonial Heights. We actually have two campuses now. And I'm on city council. I ran uh, for city council. I'm two-time, two-term elected uh, to council. I'm also a volunteer police chaplain, as you referenced uh, in the opening of this. And, um, gosh, what else does Mike do? Uh, a little bit of everything, every hat uh, that, that we can find. So that's a little bit about me. That's the bio. And uh, what we're trying to do here in the 66th is we have a delegate from this district that has been uh, in the seat for 32 years. He is now retiring and he's running for governor. 
and that's former Speaker of the House Kirk Cox. And with his endorsement, I'm running to be his replacement. So that's where we're at. So what, what's driving you to want to do this? Well, really, it's about trying to make a difference in my community. Um, I've always been, it's a, maybe an overused term for some people, but a servant leader. And the idea that I want to give back, I want to take care of people. I want to leave something better than I found it. And that goes back to my Air Force career uh, of fighting for our nation and wanting to make a difference in our nation. And then starting in my community here and running for council, trying to make a difference for the citizens of Colonial Heights, whether that's through better schools, whether that's through lower taxes, um, the conservative principles that I think are really American principles that are really Virginia principles. And now with Kirk retiring to run uh, for governor, it left a vacuum uh, in the 66th. And my hope, to be honest with you, was that someone else was prepared to run, that someone else was kind of in the wings waiting, um, groomed, so to speak, to, to replace Kirk. And when I found out that wasn't the case, we started doing some exploratory uh, talking to political committees in the area. I talked to some political consultants, was able to put together an incredible campaign staff. Um, I think I've got one of the best campaign staffs in Virginia, particularly uh, for a non-incumbent delegate to have the strength of the staff we have is awesome. And um, so we started this. We, la we launched the campaign back in November. Uh, as soon as we won uh, my re-election campaign, uh, two weeks later, we announced that we were running for delegate uh, because we wanted to be ahead of anyone else that may think about jumping in the race. We've cleared the field. We are the nominee. I do not have a primary. I do not have to worry about that. The Democrats have two declared candidates on their side will be running. And so I, I ran because I really wanted to uh, make a difference and make a difference here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, make a difference for our conservative values. I think single party rule in Richmond right now is the biggest threat to continued success of the Commonwealth of Virginia over anything I've seen in my lifetime. And so we've got to get in there. We've got to get to the fight and we've got to take back the House to stop some of this, what I think is absolutely terrible legislation that's coming through the General Assembly and being signed into law by a rogue out of control uh, governor. Yeah, I, I tell you, you probably heard this when I interviewed Daniel Gade, uh, who ran for the Senate. When I, this is my third time living in the D.C. area. And my first time when I left, uh, I, I actually lived on the Maryland side of the border. And I vowed that when I came back to Virginia, or back to this area, I should say, because I knew I was going to be coming back to this area, that I was going to live on the Virginia side. Because at the time, this was in the mid-90s, Maryland was very left-wing. Uh, the conservative side of the border was over here in Virginia. And then when I came back all these years later, I was shocked to see that the tide had changed that uh, Virginia had, had really turned blue, and it's a very solid blue right now. And in my opinion, and I'm sure you share the same opinion, that's been disastrous for this state, hasn't it? It absolutely has been disastrous. And um, people ask how, like, how did it happen? Why did it happen? You know, what's the impetus for it? That was the and question I had, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the D.C. area. And I think what's happened is, you know, there's a lot of people that moved to Washington, D.C. because – they want to be involved in the politics of it. And they may get there and, and they'll realize that D.C. proper, one, is very expensive, and two, it's not really conducive to family living. And so then as they mature, get to the point that they want to start a family, they've looked for areas that were 
uh, conducive for raising a family, and that's been Northern Virginia. And they just keep moving further and further south out of the D.C. metro area. And so now you've got Fairfax, Loudoun County, uh, those northern tier counties that are all being, I think, inundated by these people that are coming to Washington, D.C. And then when they start to look for um, family living, they move south. And unfortunately, they didn't leave their political leanings in D.C. They're bringing them with them further south. And I think that's been the trend that we've seen um, in, in the voting. Part two to that piece, and this particularly goes to one of the reasons I'm running, which is education reform, is that conservatives abdicated the school system years ago. And we gave up on keeping prayer in school. We gave up on the Pledge of Allegiance in school. We have given up on teaching that America is an awesome nation and should be defended. And uh, so the liberals have played the long game on us. They've gone into the public school system and they've really created indoctrination centers that teach uh, socialism is okay, that teach America is the problem, that teach you're better off uh, with the government taking care of you than you are uh, striving for excellence and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and making your life successful, that the government should be that for you and the government should provide all of your basic needs. And that is socialism. And it has failed in every time it's ever been implemented. If you want to go uh, to Venezuela, I've got a friend that's from Venezuela, joined the United States Army, uh, moved up here to America, joined the Army, and had a great career because he saw the ills of what socialism, communism was doing to a very once prosperous nation. And um, I think that's the path we're on, and we've got to stem the tide. Education is one of the ways we stop that. So getting kids out of public schools, whether that's through vouchers, whether that's through education savings account, uh, school choice has to be something that uh, parents, I think, um, can get behind, particularly in Virginia this year. You know, with public schools being closed, uh, many public school districts still closed, still not open face to face, even though we're told to follow the science uh, with all of the mask mandates, et cetera. Uh, the data shows us that children don't readily catch or transmit this disease. And yet here we are, schools closed shut down, teacher unions ruling over it. And I think parents, even in the center, maybe even to your your soft Democrats and maybe some of your hardline Democrats, don't find that acceptable that their kids can't go to school. And so I think that's a winning message for us this fall is education, education reform. Yeah. And let me ask you, what do you think is what do you think is driving that? Because it's becoming clear, crystal clear that there is no benefit to not having face-to-face school, but there's a lot of detriment. I mean, you talked about your crisis intervention training, peer-to-peer counseling, and I know the world, uh, you know, I the, the other part of my life is I do a lot of work, recovery work and mental health work, and particularly in law enforcement, but not exclusively. And I know that the pandemic and the lockdown has been devastating in the in mental health uh, arena. Uh, has that been your experience? And, um, you know, if so, what what are, what are your thoughts on that? And what do you think that we should be doing? Because this is certainly affecting the school system. It is. And um, suicide rate has gone up. Drug and alcohol use has gone up. Um, the statistics are overwhelming. Like you said, that it is way more detrimental to have our schools shut down than it is to have our schools open. Um, and this is where I kind of struggle a little bit because, of, of my belief system and the way I think the schools are teaching our students that I think schools should be open, but I think parents should not want to send their kids there. And so it's just <laughs> kind, of, yeah. kind of a, 
kind of kind of a mixed message. Someone could say that that I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, but well, uh, but I think I you guess, have a different reason for that. Exactly. <laughs> it's not necessarily the the pandemic. Exactly, and that comes back to to you know choice. You know, I think we're all better off with choice. Um, the capitalistic system has shown us that whenever there are options and whenever there's competition, a better product is produced. And the fallacy is that if you bring in school vouchers, public schools suffer and they fall off. There's many states that have vouchers and it's simply not true. Matter of fact, some of them are some of the highest performing schools uh, in the nation. You can go to uh, like Connecticut, for example, which is rated as one of the top school districts uh, in the entire nation. They have school choice. You can even choose your public school up there. And so your tax dollars will follow you to whichever school you go to. So if the school down the street is performing better or if the school down the street is producing uh, better students that are getting into better colleges or they have special programs uh, here in Virginia, we have what we call the magnet program. So you have uh, an engineering school at LC Bird. You have a computer science program at Toica. You have uh, a language immersion school up at uh, Monacan. And so you've got these different programs that, that you can apply into. Well, if those programs are working for that, why shouldn't that be the same thing we get for every school? And why is it that, you know, we're right here by Petersburg, which has a, uh, a very difficult, uh, I'm trying not to say terrible, but it's kind of a, um, a terrible school system, unaccredited in many ways, shapes and forms, mm. underperforming. Um, why do those students have to suffer because of their zip code when there may be other options, whether that's private school or a different zone public school? And the tax dollars follow them wherever they're going to go. Well, again, what do you what do you think is driving this? Because we know that children are not at risk, and maybe even the larger question is: Let me just say this: We know who is at risk, and we we certainly know who is not at risk. But yet, we still have these draconian lockdowns and the shutting down of our economy and the school systems. What what is your thought as to what's driving this? Because it's Governor Northam has a lot of input, yeah. doesn't he? He does. And, and it's plain and simple what it is. It's the teachers associations. Uh, people say teacher union just as a common word. Virginia does not have unions, but it is a teachers association. And from the beginning, the teachers associations has been directing their members do not go to work. Stay home. Refuse. And I have friends that are in the Chesapeake County school system that are high up in the Chesapeake County school system hierarchy. And they've said very, very readily that they could not open any earlier than they did because they were told there would be mass walkouts of teachers, that teachers would not come to work, that teachers would not uh, do, uh, would not come to school if, if certain demands weren't met. And it's about social justice and it's about all these other issues that have nothing to do with education. Uh, now, that's the union slash association part. I know some teachers that have been just as frustrated individually about not being able to go back. Mm -hmm. So I think it's those associations. They have a lot of money. They donate very heavily to Democrat candidates and they are, in essence, getting their money back and getting their money's worth because they're controlling the narrative on schools staying closed. So your, your position then is that this is really social justice driven. It's part of it. Yeah. it. It is definitely part of it. And then it's the dumbing down of the system and dumbing down of the students. So this week, the Department of Education, as you say, under the direction of Governor Northam, ultimately, um, said they were going to get rid of advanced math classes and they were going to get rid of advanced diplomas because it wasn't fair, their terminology, it wasn't equitable 
that everybody didn't get to take those advanced math classes. And therefore, we don't want one student to feel bad because they're not as smart as someone else. So instead of everyone striving for excellence, we're going to step back and let everybody strive for mediocrity and hope everybody stays on the same playing field in the name of equality. And, and that's a very frustrating thing for me because, again, I think we should strive for excellence. In our private Christian school, excellence is rewarded. When you work harder, you get certain freedoms. You get certain liberties. Uh, we're putting kids in major uh, Division One schools for football, particularly, uh, because these kids are striving for excellence. They want to be better than their teammate. They want to be better than their competitors. And excellence will always rise to the top if you give it the opportunity to. They just don't want that. They want to make everybody mediocre and equal. Yeah, it's a really strange concept, isn't it? It's a very strange concept that we, it seems like this has been just come out of the woodwork in the last few years. Because I, I've never, uh, you know, you got to wonder where all of this came from. It, it is, and it's it's the socialistic playbook is exactly what it is, and they're educating to the lower level because an, an uneducated populace is easier to control. When you don't know you have certain individual rights and liberties, it's why they don't teach the Constitution anymore. It's why they don't have civics classes anymore, because they don't want you to know what your individual rights and liberties are. Uh, I'll take it a half a step further, and this is, this is probably a little bit on the conspiracy theory scale, but um, they don't teach cursive in schools anymore. Why is that important? Because all of our founding documents are written in cursive. And so there'll come a day where students could literally be told that they don't have certain rights or liberties. And because they can't look at those documents for themselves and see what's there, they're not going to know what was guaranteed by our creator through the constitutional uh, process that our founding fathers went through to guarantee our rights. And so it's an attack on America. It's an attack on our rights and it's an attack on our civil liberties. And uh, they want to take away our right to defend ourselves, which is why they're coming after the Second Amendment. They want to silence the voice of the conservatives, which is why we're silenced on social media, while we're silenced on uh, different platforms, uh, Twitter. When you can cancel out the president of the United States of America on a social media platform, censorship is alive and well. And whether you agreed with or disagreed with with what Trump did, said, et cetera, is irrelevant to the point that we should all have the freedom to say what we want to say and be able to have our voice heard in the public square. And that's being muted more and more. It is. And I, I can tell you, I mean, put the president of the United States aside. I, I've run into that. I'm sure you've run into that. Uh, I have had warnings put to me on on the Mark Fine show uh, actually on on our Facebook site and sometimes it's things that uh, listeners have put on uh, newspaper articles and references and it'll get fact checked and what yep. i think is interesting about the quote unquote fact check is that oftentimes they will say that this was disputed and then they will cite another article disputing the <laughs> article that was posted no, I, yep. i'm serious and and that's their their fact. And then then you'll read the article that they're citing, and you find that that's not entirely correct itself. And you know we've gotten to the point to where I mean, let's face it, this is an opinion pro program. I give my opinion. The uh, the listeners give their opinions, and nobody's inciting violence. Nobody's talking about. Uh, subversion or anything like that. It's just people expressing their opinions, which is, you know, I thought that was one of our fundamental rights in this country is you being able to express your opinions freely. 
as long as you're not harming anyone else. And then you've got Facebook coming in and um, warning you and warning to, to you know warning you to, that they'll take down your your Facebook site because of thoughts that are being expressed. I've never seen this in my lifetime. Have you? I, obviously, I've never seen it uh, in my lifetime, and uh, but I have seen it in terms of the world stage in history before. And uh, one of the things I did in the military was I was a military deception officer, NCO. I was always a, an enlisted guy, but uh, they called us TDOs, uh, tactical deception officers. And so I got to go to this really neat class. It was held in uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado at the Air Force Academy. It was done in a vault so that everything was secured because all of the information that you're going to learn and, and do is all top secret and above uh, type material. And um, I went to this class and it was all about propaganda. It was all about sleight of hand. It was about telling people to look on the left while you're moving something on the right. And so in studying all of this, I'm seeing now this play out in the media. You're seeing this play out where they're trying to keep us all distracted by what's going on on our left hand while they're fundamentally changing America on our right hand. Mm-hmm. That's and a very so good point. Yeah. That, that, that's what it is. It's propaganda. And when you um, refuse to let one side speak, and as you say, they quote unquote fact check you with an article that comes from one of their propaganda sites, whether that's whatever mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, um, th- there's there's no truth anymore in the public square. And it's all intended to keep us divided. It's all intended to keep us deceived and to, again, in my opinion, to destroy America. Yeah, uh, that's all it can be. I mean, because you look at what's happening with the, the police. You know, you and I both have a, a strong relationship with the police forces across the country. And you see the information that's put out and how wrong it is. And, you know, we have police officers leaving in droves. I I saw an article this week that uh, 75, what was it, a spike in 75% of the retirees and um, people resigning from the NYPD this year from from previous years. And, you know, information, the systemic racism in in law enforcement, I I, I haven't asked you your position on that, but I think that that's nonsensical. I never saw that in my career. Never. Right. I mean, you do you have bad apples here and there? Was Derek Chauvin up in Minneapolis? Was he a bad apple? Absolutely. But the one thing that was interesting about that trial, the one subject that was not brought up was him being a racist. Yep. Because the case had nothing to do, to do with racism. Was he a bad guy? Does he need to go to prison? Did he commit a crime? Absolutely. But to say that it was racially motivated, there was zero evidence of that. But now every single incident that we have in this country is racially motivated. And this just seems to have just happened overnight. And it's affecting us here in Virginia because, yeah. because we're, you know, again, Governor Northam is taking some positions that are certainly detrimental to law enforcement. So maybe if we switch to that topic, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, agree 100%. Uh, again, that's about destabilizing uh, our communities. Everything is now uh, driven by race. Uh, I was on another uh, radio program this morning. And um, it was talking about critical race theory being taught in our schools. As an educator, they wanted to know, you know, what did I think about this idea that everything has to be looked through a lens of racism? And it, it's terrible. It's, it's abhorrent. Yes, as you say, when it comes back to our police, that um, they're bad apples and they need to be weeded out and they need to be held accountable. 
but if you paint the whole brush or paint the whole picture with one brush, then you're going to end up with one answer. And uh, police officers are leaving in droves. Uh, right now, our department is down six officers. We have an ad out for, um, for, for new hires, and we get like 10 to 12 applicants for a position where used to we would get 150 to 200 applicants. Mm-hmm. People just simply do not feel that uh, the government, whatever local government that is, and the people of those communities have their backs anymore. And why would you enter into a career where you're not appreciated, where many times you're underpaid, where you put your life on the line, and yet there's no uh, respect for that anymore. There's no uh, people backing you anymore. It is simply uh, you against the world, so to speak. And knowing that at any moment you could have to make a split-second decision that would be uh, something that could haunt you for the rest of your life. And what, what's the, what's, is it, is there anything worth doing that? And more and more, unless you really have a call to be a, a police officer, people aren't choosing that as a career path. And what I find interesting as a retired law enforcement officer myself is that what the narrative that's driving this is that we have bad apples in police departments and it's systemically racist and and people are making you know they police officers just want to go out and uh, pick on minorities and and do all these horrible things when if you think 10 years down the road what this narrative is doing is it's creating a system that will be much worse than what you have right now think about it and i the people that are listening i want you to think about this if you don't like the police system the way that it is now for those of you that don't that that you you think that our system is poor the way it is run now you know that 10 years from now you're really not going to like the system that you have because think about this today we will this is this will be the best you ever see our police forces in this country because 10 years from now you're going to have people that have spent 10 years in the department where they were the people that took the job that no one else would take. And these are probably not the people that you want being a police officer, if you think about it. So the very system that, that you all are trying to correct, you're actually damaging, and you're going to have a worse result. Do you, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, 100%, because no longer are we getting – no, I'm not trying to be dismissive of, of the people. You're not. You're not going to get the best of the best. There's no way. You're not get the best. That's that's really what it comes down to. Is you're not getting the best of the best. People that may have chosen it as a career in the past won't. Um, here's what the other side doesn't realize, and and their hypocrisy shows time and time again. But they want to defund the police. They want to uh, now. There's a call from a, a House of Representative member to abolish the police. Yeah. But where, what is going to maintain law and order from chaos? Because those of us that are on this side that stand with law enforcement that want peace, we have the guns and we have the ammo. So if the thin blue line is gone, we're, we're going to be okay to, to protect ourselves and to take care of ourselves and, and to do that. But it, it's going to be literally like the Purge movie that, that was produced, a horror flick a few years ago, where there's no limits on people – uh, rape, murder, uh, all sorts of death and everything else that you can imagine, because that thin blue line is there to protect everyone. Mm-hmm. And they say it's against them, but but it's there to protect everyone. Millions of police officers go to work every day and don't shoot anybody. 
and they go to work every day and they don't kneel on somebody's neck until they die. I mean, these millions of police officers are being painted with that brush and they've not done anything wrong. And again, that's the collective thinking of a socialist mindset that it's all or nothing, that we're we're all equal, that everyone has the same outcome, no matter how much effort you input into it. And it's just wrong. So if you uh, are elected to the House of Delegates, what are some of the issues that are coming through the House now that, that you would specifically address in this area? What, what's kind oh. of on the table right now? Yeah, so the first thing is um, when you talk about supporting law enforcement, it's a term that's called qualified immunity. And what that does is it protects a police officer from frivolous lawsuits. And if an officer breaks the law, he is held accountable. That that exists. But what they're doing is they're trying to say that these officers that, that commit these crimes uh, are not held accountable because of qualified immunity. Therefore, we should get rid of qualified immunity so that people can sue police officers. And so can you imagine that uh, if you're a police officer and you stop someone for speeding and they felt like you were mean to them, that they could then sue you in, in a court of law and, and try to take damages away from you for you being mean, ugly, curt, short, rude, whatever terminology they want to say that you hurt their feelings. And that every day uh, I've actually been there. <laughs> I, I was a local police officer. I've, I, you know, that's usually about twelve times a day you run into that. Yeah. <laughs> and can you imagine all twelve of those people that you wrote tickets to being able to go down to the local courthouse and file a lawsuit against you, just because they felt like you did something wrong? And even though you're not going to lose those cases, the fact that you would be tied up in court, you would have to spend all of your money and resources to protect and defend your livelihood. Police officers will quit and leave in droves, right. and yet it's uh, put on the floor. Thankfully, we fought it back this past year, but it will come up again in the next session. I guarantee it uh, that the Democrats are going to float that again of taking away this qualified immunity. But again, the problem is the way they spin the narrative, the way they lie to people about what it is and what it isn't, has people fooled that police officers aren't held accountable if they break the law. And that's simply not true. Right. Uh, and what the public needs to understand, and, I, and I've often thought about this, and I think, you know, law enforcement is the only, the only profession that I know of where the general public thinks they know better than the people that do this for a living. And they watch television and they think that policing is like what they see in, in television, in the movies. And that's why I've always, you know, and it's funny when in the FBI and in the police department, when I was there, we, we did citizens academies where we, we would bring people in and, you know, community leaders, you know, people like yourself, maybe, maybe you've done something like this where you, you come in and I'm sure you, you see it in the police department that you're with right now, where you go in and, and maybe do a ride along with a local police officer or uh, go through some of the training they go through. And it's amazing how people's attitudes towards law enforcement change. And when it comes to qualified immunity, what I don't think the general public understands is, uh, folks, um, I used to say this to my wife and kids, that if you knew how many crazy people were walking around, you know, people that really ha have like serious mental health issues that are walking around, it would stun you. Um, but when you're a local police officer, you're dealing with that all of the time. Um, you, you, In many cases, you are dealing with people with true mental health issues and that they're delusional and they, and, and I feel for these people and police officers really do the best that they can to help these folks. But 
to think that I would be in a position as a local police officer where that person with serious mental health issues could just walk down to the courthouse and just file one lawsuit after another against me because they are uh, envisioning things or saying that I kidnapped them and did experiments on them. And, and yes, folks, that actually happens. You do get accused of that when you're a police officer. Um, to think that somebody could go and do that and basically cripple me from doing my job, that's what you're talking about, isn't it? That's exactly what you're talking about. And, and it's absolutely scary to think that that's what officers could be facing, which is why if qualified immunity goes away, and I have many, many, many friends that are in law enforcement, they have said almost to a man and woman that if that passes, they're gone because yeah. they can't they can't put their family at risk like that. And you're right. We have a great ride along program in our community. Uh, any citizen can come and do a ride along with a police officer. They simply do some background check on you to make sure you're you're not someone who's looking to harm them. Uh, but beyond that, you can get in the car. You can go on a uh, 12 hour, six hour, eight hour, however long you ha- feel like hanging out. And see what goes on. And it's eye-opening. And it I is. do that yeah. chaplain, and I want to support my officers. So I get out there, and I ride frequently with them. Um, I'm, I'm actually, when I go out, I, I go and qualify. So I get to carry my firearm with them, and I get to wear, I have a ballistic vest uh, that I get to wear. And, and I really probably look closer to a regular police officer than a chaplain. Um, but it's eye-opening to see what they face every day. And it's why I'm their chaplain. Because when you have, like, say a citizen passes away, unfortunately, maybe it's a car accident, maybe it's a suicide, maybe it's some of those other things that they have to see and deal with every day. And then someone has to go let that family know that their child isn't coming home, that their mom isn't coming home. And to ask a police officer to shrug back into uh, really a sense of humanity and expect him to do that is difficult. Because they do deal with the worst of the worst every day. They do have to put a shell around their emotions and around their their heart, so to speak, to use, to use the Christian terminology, to protect themselves because of, of the, the nastiness they see every single day. Yeah. I support them through that. So I go do the death notifications. I go, I go hold a mother's hand who's told her son's not coming home anymore. And then in addition to that, in, in our city, we have a Citizens Academy that they go through the entire city program. So you want to know how parks and recs works? You can go to the Citizens Academy and you get to go through every department in the entire city because knowledge is power. And we want people to understand how city government works and how it all fits together. And then you talk about the mental health aspect of what these officers are dealing with on the street. Truly, that is the biggest crisis, I think, in America. It's not racism. It's not uh, cops that want to shoot people. It purely is we have a mental health crisis in america and it's not being addressed no and here in virginia they're trying to implement a program again through liberal uh leadership in richmond they have passed this new program and it's called the marcus bill and are the marcus program and it's named after a gentleman who was actually um shot by state police in a justified shooting uh, because he was having a mental health crisis on i-95 in the middle of richmond and he had attacked and and damaged several cars and several police officers but they've now named a program after him where they want to have a system that if someone's having a mental health crisis, that a police officer doesn't even show up, that it's only handled by a mental health professional. Here's the problem with that. There's a great video, uh, say great video, it, it's a telling video, a body cam video. There was an officer who was called to do a mental health check on a gentleman, and I think it was Alabama, may, may not be right on the state, but uh, the point of the video was, 
female officer standing right outside the door, knocks on the door, hoping to do a mental health check on a patient, on, on, a, on a citizen. He comes out and the first thing he does is he pulls a gun out and starts shooting. Thankfully, she was prepared, took protective cover, was able to return fire, was able to eliminate the threat and, and to not die that day on that porch. But can you imagine if that was a mental health professional that was sent to that house who didn't have a firearm, who didn't have training? And that gentleman had just been able to execute them standing on the doorstep. That's my fear with these programs is they're missing that we all need to do this together. Our officers need better mental health training on how to interdict uh, with people that are having a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that we have body cams now. Our, our jurisdiction, our, we every single officer has a body cam. And we went to it before it was even really popular because our chief believed that they would protect our officers. And it does. We've had several instances where people have come in and made false police reports about something that a police officer had done to them. And the major who deals with these complaints says, OK, cool. What date was that? I'll go pull the body cam footage and I'll look at the entire incident. And they sh they literally turn around and walk back out because they know they're lying and they're <laughs> trying. And so it saved our officers on multiple occasions from false claims. And you talk again, coming back to the qualified immunity thing, that, that these false claims would come and it would tie up our officers. And they wouldn't be able to do their job because they were worried about the, the lawsuit thing. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because my law enforcement career spans long enough ah. that I was in law enforcement pre-body cams and post-body cams. And I remember when they first came out, dashboard cams and body cams, that was every officer I knew, to include myself, uh, felt like that was a bad, bad idea. Everybody thought, yep. oh my gosh, that's just going to be used against us. And, you know, just everybody hated it. But, you know, it's funny, as it's turned out all these years later... Body cams have probably saved more careers yep. than they've ended. Yep. You're 100% correct. And again, it's, it's these people that, that want to make false accusations or, um, you know, you have a he said, she said scenario. And without the video, it, it could go either way. But when you have documentable proof and you can show a video to a jury or to a judge or to a supervisor and say, no, this didn't happen the way they said it happened. And if, if cops are doing bad things, good. I want them caught. I want them off the force. I want them weeded out. I want them taken down because that's not who we are as a, a unit, as, as, a, as a group of people. And so you've got to weed out the bad ones, take them out of the force so that people begin to put their trust back where it belongs, which is in their men in blue. You know, I don't think a lot of people in the public understand, and I, I want to take this opportunity to address the public on this, again, having been a law enforcement officer, is – you all understand, or you need to understand, that those that wear the badge don't want these bad apples amongst us. Like, you look at what happened up there with Derek Chauvin in Minnesota. That is not my brother. <laughs> that is not my brother. That I don't support anything. There, in fact, there's not one cop out there that I know I've ever talked to that thought that what he did was justified. And people need to understand that. That, uh, you know, law enforcement officers don't want these people in the ranks as much as you don't want them in the ranks. People have to understand that. Yeah, I know personally I stood in my living room watching that video for the first time and I'm screaming, get off of him. Like I, I, it was just this visceral reaction where I can tell that he's doing something wrong and, and I'm, I'm screaming. And obviously he can't hear me because I'm watching a video. But yet there was that visceral of a reaction that I'm going, get off of him. Mm -hmm. There's a point where he's under control, where he's no longer fighting back. And at that point, you need to, to relinquish and you need to move to, to putting him in the car or, or whatever was yeah. next. Best. 
alternative. But but do, we can't do that. But here's the problem: when we don't, you know, feel the the liberty to stand up and say that was wrong, you get a, a case like happened in Ohio where a police officer shot a young lady to save another woman's life. She's literally in the process of saving her life. And yet they want to make this coming back to our earlier conversation that it's a racial issue. Mm-hmm. Not. He's intervening in a situation where he's literally saving a young lady's life. And I'll guarantee you that the lady that was in pink and everybody's seen the video, um, that she's thankful that that officer made that decision because she wasn't going either to the hospital or to the morgue because of that other lady's actions. That's right. We got to call right, right and wrong, wrong. And and we, we've got to be clear about what is right and what is wrong. Now, one thing that you did mention, and I, and I'll, this is kind of a follow on to a discussion you and I had off air is this, and I, I would support legislation moving in this particular direction. And I'll I'll get your thoughts on this is you mentioned um, training for police officers uh, on mental health issues. Now, um, well, here, here's, you know, for those, the liberals that are out there, the left-wingers that think that I don't agree with anything that they say, I'm going to meet you half halfway on this, right? And I'll get your yep. thoughts on this, Mike. Yep. Um, the br- Taking social workers and having them respond to calls is a bad idea, okay? It's a, it's a bad idea. There's a reason, let me, let, me, let me just clue people in. When part of your job is, is part of what they assign you is a taser and a gun. That's a clue for you. That's a clue as to what that job is all about. Right. And when I show up to a a home and it, and it's a mental health check on now the, those that have never worked these types of calls think well this is a mental health patient this is not a criminal. Okay, what part of the mental health portion did you not catch in that statement? Okay, these right. are very very volatile situations. And um, if you do, if all you do is send social workers to these cases, you're going to have a lot of dead and injured um, social workers. Okay. Correct. Now, but this is where I'm going to come halfway. I do believe, and I've always believed, that mental health training and training on addictions, uh, alcoholism, prescription drug abuse, and by the way, the drug abuse and alcoholism oftentimes leads to the mental health issues, or mental health issues lead to the drug problems. There's a lot of of uh, comorbidity there. Um, I do believe that police officers should receive more training. In in other words, instead of sending a a social worker, unarmed social worker, why not just provide more training to the officers and have them perform that skill? And I would would be all behind that and support that. In fact, I think that's a good idea. What are your thoughts on that, Mike? I absolutely agree with that. And I know in our our jurisdiction, our, our chief is really big on that. And doing uh, as much training as he can and, and every opportunity he can to deal with it. I got a citizen text a few months ago and um, they were coming down what's the boulevard is our main drag here in town. And there was a there was someone that was having a mental health crisis and they were stripped down to their underwear. They were uh, obviously in distress. And the text from that citizen who, who observed this event was so complimentary of our police department because they were the ones that were dealing with this. They were the ones that were able to get him secured, get him into his group home van and get him taken back to the facility where he was housed because they had the training necessary. They didn't come in guns a blazing. They didn't come in tasing people that didn't, you know, they were able to talk to him very calmly because they had the training that was necessary Mm -hmm. to deal with that very volatile situation. Because this was obviously someone that was in a mental health crisis. 
And the citizen was so complimentary of our police force. And I sent it uh, to the, our chief and our city manager to say, our guys are doing good. And they need, we need to get those good stories out there to combat the negative ones that are always playing on a loop on every uh, MSM channel you want to watch. We need to tell the good stories of the, the good guys winning that day, getting that citizen back where he needed to be and, and, and getting him home. That's, that's a great point. And, you know, there's the old adage, it's better to have and not need than need and not have. So the, these people that don't understand law enforcement and what's going on in the communities, the problem is that if you're a social worker and you show up and it turns into a deadly force situation and you're not armed and you're not trained, then you're you're in a you're in a hurt locker. Um, but I I think the answer is going to be just really increase the training of officers, and I I'm sure officers uh, would welcome that. I I know they do because I do training, and I know you do crisis intervention training um, with your agency or participate in that. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I've 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 always thought just because my my background is is teaching on drugs and alcohol. I've always thought that police officers needed to know more in, in those areas. So I, that's a solution. And so, it, you know, God willing, you get elected to the House of Delegates. I hope that that's something that you will bring up on the floor while you're there. Absolutely. And again, for me, it's about supporting law enforcement and giving them the tools they need in the toolbox so that when they're having to make those split second, moment by moment decisions, they have what they need to make the right decision at the right time. And again, they're going to feel supported if, if by some chance things don't go as well as all of us would like them to. But um, I know, again, funding for the mental health goes beyond just the police and that kind of stuff. Our, our mental health system that's around us is absolutely terrible. Um, the way the law is written in, here in Virginia, in case people don't know uh, for their knowledge, that if someone is issued a temporary detention order and there isn't a facility available, a police officer has to sit with that person in the hospital until a bed opens up in the mental health facility that they've been uh, sent to by uh, shared services. And so in our jurisdiction, we have typically five officers on duty on any given shift, plus a supervision that, that runs on the shift as well. And so if we have someone who's under a TDO, a temporary detention order, we lose 20% of our force to go and sit at a hospital and babysit someone until a bed opens up. That's happened over 200 times in the last two years. Mm. So almost, at, at almost 50% uh, uh, of, well, let's see, uh, almost a third of our days are spent understaffed for all the other citizens because somebody's sitting in a hospital with someone waiting for a bed. And how is that fair to that officer? Is that fair to the city? And is that a good use of our assets? No, not There's at all. Legislation we'll be introducing uh, from from my desk to fix some of that stuff to, to help uh, both the mental health side and the officer side. That that's a win win for both of them. Oh, that's that's a great. So speaking of things that you would you would introduce from your desk um, in the in the moments that we have left, what are some of the other hot issues that you uh, that you know right now that you would want to introduce in the legislature? Um, education reform is number one. That's the number one thing on my plate. As an educator, I'm seeing what's going on in the public school system. I'm seeing the detriment that's happened of schools not opening for over a year, uh, some of them pushing a year and a half that they've not been in classroom. There's going to be a significant learning loss. So even though I anticipate most school systems will be open this fall, uh, I'm sig significantly and seriously worried about kids that are going to be behind. 
Uh, I know for our kids, you know, two and a half months over the summer, there's learning loss. They come into the next grade, say they finish fourth grade, they're going to fifth grade. We spend the first half of the first semester reviewing what they should have learned last year because they've forgotten it over the summer. Can only imagine how much more that is going to be impactful when they've gone a year and a half out of school. And so there's a lot of things that we need to do with uh, putting together plans, putting money uh, where our mouth is in terms of tutors and uh, lower staffing for the classroom so we get more teachers back into the classroom so there's a better student to teacher ratio so students uh, get the individualized instruction care they need as well as offering options for parents whether that's through an education savings account vouchers getting parents to where they can choose a different school option for their student those are those are priorities for me coming into uh, number two is is the police support and whether that's making sure that we support them through qualified immunity as you and I have already spoken uh, at length about with uh, mental health training and, and making sure that they're prepared for, for the citizenry and, and dealing with them in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. And then for individual rights and liberties and protecting that, shutting down big tech that's shutting out people and silencing voices. Uh, we in the state legislature have some input into what Facebook and Twitter and, and these other platforms are able to do within our state. And so how do we make sure that we're supporting our citizens, giving them the rights and accesses that they need to uh, have and exercise their individual rights and liberties. Wow. I, I, I'm behind you 100% on that. I'm, I'm very excited about the possibility of you being elected. Um, any other big hot issues? Anything um, that is, what's on the table right now that you are absolutely against in the legislature? Um, depending on which legislators are, are, are elected this fall, I know uh, there's been a push for abortion funding. Yeah. There's been a push for abortion up to birth. Uh, as a pastor, obviously, I'm going to be a pro-life guy that, that believes that, that life begins at conception. And, and those are things that, that have been pushed through the legislature for the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, it, it went through before I could even get there. But with the legalization uh, coming down the pipe this year, I think there's going to be some implications to that we're going to have to deal with. Um, in terms of, of making that work for Virginia, because basically they've opened the floodgates without having a plan in place. And so now we've got to come back and put the plan in place of how to manage that, because once the horse is out of the barn, it's not going back in, but we do have to manage it. And so how do we do it? How do we do it effectively? And how do we uh, make it work for all the citizens of Virginia? Um, I tell you, even if you are lukewarm on the whole abortion issue, some of the things that have been proposed – in Virginia, I think shutters that really just is just amazing. It's they've really gone beyond even what we've seen before in, in abortion, haven't they? They've proposed. I mean, Governor Northam himself actually talked yeah. about having a child after birth, providing comfort to the child, uh, and then having well, a discussion about uh, uh, terminating that child's life. I mean, that that's going beyond abortion. Well, and this is this is this is my easy definition or easy understanding for for people who wonder about liberalism in its in its core state um, most of their positions are illogical and so if you're a logical person that reasons through thought and makes decisions you have a very tough time dealing with someone who is on the liberal side of politics because the things that they believe don't have any basis in fact or reality well if you don't have a basis in fact or reality there's no limit to where you will go and so 
the idea that abortion up through birth, and, and as you stated, our governor even said we would make them comfortable after birth, that's infanticide. Like, that's not okay. That is murder. I was I was going to say that's actually murder by, by legal definition. That's By legal definition. The current and, and, legal definition, that's murder. Here's a here's a great point, and, and if and if any liberal can ever explain this to me, they, they will have won uh, an argument with me for the first time ever. So you are a law enforcement officer. I serve with my police department. If a young lady decided she wanted to terminate her pregnancy through abortion up through say the tenth week, and she goes into an abortion clinic, and uh, that is her by law, that is her right. That doctor is not charged with a crime. And uh, matter of fact, in some places, the, the government will fund that. However, if that same young lady is walking down the street and she is tragically killed, the criminal that perpetuates that crime will be charged with two counts of murder. That's illogical. Either it is a child and it is to be protected or it is not. And so here again is an illogical position from a left person that believes in abortion that can, can you explain that to me, being a former law enforcement officer? No, one, I'm one, glad one, to hear you say that because I have asked people that question before. Uh, because the jurisdiction I worked in, that is exactly how it would be applied. That had you had you run over a pregnant woman in a vehicle, you would have been ch- charged with two counts of manslaughter, not one count, but two counts. Yep. And that made no sense to me whatsoever, based on. Their position made no sense whatsoever. Yeah, and I don't understand why there's why there's judges who sit on benches that can look at those things, two things being incongruent to me, because either it's a child or it's not, and define it as such. And if it's a child, it should be protected. If it's not, you're hypocritical by charging a criminal for murder or manslaughter or whatever and not charging a, a doctor and a mother who would want to do the same thing. Um, that's my only argument. Fix it. It's either one or the other. You have to define it. And if it's defined as a child, which I think it is, now we have a stance to take uh, in the courts. And if it's not, well, then I think all people have lost. And I think there's going to be a lot of outcry when mothers are, are killed and there's not a charge given for the child that's in her womb. I, I agree. And you know what, Mike? I really like the logic that you're applying to these because whether it's abortion, whether it's gun rights, whether it's what we're doing with the, with the police, our society, America in general, and Virginia in particular, since that's where you and I both live, there's no logic being used to, to anything, none whatsoever. And I really, really like and appreciate your common sense, logical approach to these issues. So go ahead and take us out and just give us one last, um, you know, one last push as to why should the people of Virginia, uh, particularly in your district, vote for you and put you into the House of Delegates? Well, I'll tell you, it, it has been an honor to serve my community and I want to continue to serve. Uh, my life has been about service, uh, 20 years of military service in defense of our nation traveling uh, conflicts and combat from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, all the way through Somalia, being there uh, near when Black Hawk Down happened, uh, Mogadishu there, uh, going to Albania, going to uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and and seeing these other places. um, It makes me love America more. And I get frustrated when people say America is this and America that, because having seen the majority of the rest of the world, there's no other place like America. And then particularly here in Virginia. And so I served our nation. Now I want to serve our Commonwealth. 
I want to be a servant leader that that helps to fix problems. Um, I'm a problem solver. I'm, I'm a big picture type of guy. Details bug me down, uh, bog <laughs> me down. I want to be I want to be in the sky, if you will, because I think there's some really big problems in Virginia that needs to be fixed. And I think we need someone that can come out with a common sense approach. Um, I'm not a right wing nut. Uh, that thinks, you know, all these conspiracy theories, QAnon and all this other kind of stuff. I'm just a regular, ordinary, normal guy who wants to serve my community, who wants to serve my state. And I think I bring a common sense approach to leadership, a common sense approach to problems and issues. And with logic and critical thinking, I think we can find some good solutions to what I think are going to be some very overwhelming problems for the Commonwealth of Virginia if we continue this one-party Democrat rule uh, in Richmond. Oh, so that's why I have well support. Said. Uh, Mike Cherry for VA.com is the website. They can find out more information there. That's Mike Cherry, F-O-R-V-A, and uh, find out more information about me and the campaign. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for coming on. And um, guys, get out, campaign for Mike. You know, give him all the support that you can. Support all of our, our candidates that are going to be running. You know, this is going to be a critical election. In fact, it's... Folks, we've we've got to turn this ship around. We really, really do. And I think we're going to move in that direction by electing people like Mike Cherry. So once again, uh, it's Mike uh, Mike Cherry for VA.com. Did I get that correct? That's the one. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Uh, give him a support. And folks, just get out there. I know this last year has been tough. I know people are checking out. I know people are just burned out of, of politics and the discussion of politics. But this is not the time to give up. We've got to push forward, and we've got to take Virginia back. We have to do that. So, folks, thanks for listening to The Mark Vine Show. Check us out on Facebook. We um, have our own Facebook site, and that's The uh, uh, Mark Vine Show. We are also on Rumble. We are also on Parler. And so with that, folks, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.